Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily Pucks podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Teddy Schleifer. It is Monday, August 1st, and that means it is Media Monday. John Kelly, our editor-in-chief, and I are here to talk about the drama over a story at the Wall Street Journal. We'll also talk about NFL Plus, the new streaming service from the National Football League. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Monday, everybody. August 1st. Don't forget to pay your rent for you millennials who are not homeowners like me. I'm here with John Kelly, our Media Monday weekly guest, also the editor-in-chief of Puck. Hey, John. Hey, Teddy. So let's let's break the fourth wall here. John, you and I have been talking um, all, all week since last Sunday when the Wall Street Journal published a rather explosive story about Sergey Brin, who is the Google co-founder, uh, one of the 10 wealthiest people, I believe, in the world, and Sergey's rupture, in the words of the Wall Street Journal, his ruptured friendship with Elon Musk. And everybody cares a ton about Elon, but the story basically delved into an alleged affair between Elon and Sergey's ex-wife. Unclear how ex at the time they were, I assume that's part of the debate. But since this is a media show, and I honestly have primarily been interested in the media angle, and I know you have too, it's hard to discuss the media angle without discussing whether or not it's exactly true or not. But Dylan Byers and I have been reporting this out sort of from different angles. Dylan from more of the media side, me from the Nicole Shanahan, who's the woman in question, and Sergey Brin and Elon Musk side. Let's just start with like John from like, from like a media angle and someone who has seen a lot of sensitive stories and has edited a lot of sensitive stories over the years. What was your initial reaction on Sunday when you, when you saw that piece? My initial reaction was um, I was thrilled that the, the piece quoted your interview with Nicole Shanahan a couple weeks earlier. I, I think that um, on some level, uh, she's a, a very unknown person in the culture. And I was proud that you were seeing around corners and, and realizing what a large cultural footprint she's going to have as a, a investor and philanthropist. Um, Obviously, when you interviewed her, we had, we had no earthly idea of, of what allegedly went on here. But I totally like split out my um, my soup when I read this for for a lot of reasons. The journal did a very a more than adequate job of dressing this up as a sort of corporate narrative story, as much as they try to make it about the the friendship between two entrepreneurs and about the fact that Sergey Brin has invested in in Musk's companies and I think gave, like wrote him like a half million dollar check when when Tesla was going through uh, some of its its rough patches. Obviously, the only thing that matters here is this alleged affair. The headline is Elon Musk's friendship with Sergey Brin ruptured by alleged affair. This is bizarre, Teddy, because this 
very article is the piece that is alleging the affair in the first place. It's a bit of like verbal jujitsu that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It, it did something that is out of character for the journal. The journal doesn't usually report on people's private lives. I think the last time we saw something even remotely close to this, and, and it wasn't even remotely close, was the journal's piece on the um, Melinda Gates and Bill Gates divorce, because that had obviously, you know, an impact on billions of dollars in personal finances and in investments in in the Gates philanthropy and the, the giving pledge. I mean, it goes going down the line like it has, you know, um, the, the GDP of like El Salvador is, is impacted there. This is is quite a different situation, though, and it seems like a, a personal matter. And affairs are weird to me. I mean, to know about an affair to the point where you are comfortable publishing that an alleged affair took place my standard for that would be that a principal would have to be involved in in talking to the journalist. And we just don't know that. Um, the other thing that I found surprising too, when any journalist contemplates publishing something that's this explosive and, and this explosively sensitive, you normally engage lawyers for days, if not weeks, to figure out the right language, how to massage things occasionally, not just to corroborate details, but also like words really do matter, especially when people's reputations are on the line. And you know, when, when, you know, all three of them are billionaires or at least two of the three are, are mega, mega centibillionaires, billionaires, then one wants to be careful. And I read this story and I don't know when I'm behind the scenes entirely, uh, you know, there's some of it that, that we will never know. I was just surprised by this one paragraph. A lawyer for Mr. Brin declined to comment. Mr. Musk did not respond to a request for comment. A spokeswoman for Ms. Shanahan, who runs a foundation focused on reproductive justice, also didn't respond to a request for comment. I would have expected the, the legal representatives of these people to have paragraphs worth of statements that they insisted on publishing. Look, we, Dylan published a piece about Condé Nast revenue numbers earlier this week. The company pushed back strongly and wrote like a very aggressive two-sentence note, which we were happy to publish. Like, that was more aggressive than any of the lawyers for these people suggested. It made me wonder, did this happen quickly? And, and like, I believe the journal, like the journal obviously has enormous credibility. The journalists who are involved in this have enormous credibility. But I feel like there's a bit of um, hand showing that they cannot do here. And I presume they, they cannot do it because they will not do it. And obviously the, the most recent revelation that, that fascinates us both is that Brian Friedman, who's sort of the Marty Singer of our time, the the great, you know, litigator who has interests, uh, represents you know, people from Chris Cuomo, do I think Ken Jennings, I think he was involved in the Megyn Kelly case. He's been hired by Nicole Shanahan, which suggests to me that she is digging in here. The context here on Nicole is, she basically like, doesn't really have many staff. Sergey has a family office called Bayshore Global, which is, might have 50 to 100 people who work there. And she basically kind of worked with Bayshore before. She has like one or two people who sort of advise her on a whole range of projects. And she had like, you know, a family lawyer handling a divorce attorney, handling, handling the divorce, someone who specializes in high profile, expensive divorce cases, but not someone who like knows about media, right. And knows about defamation cases, which is sort of what, what, uh, she, she's threatening. So, right. The, the idea to hire this person is a signal. I think there's kind of two questions here. There there's question one, which is, is this true? And there's question two of if it's true, should you publish? Question one, like, I have a hard time believing the story is false, or at least does not have an element of truth, just just because, you know, the credibility of journalists, like the level of detail on like, you know, on, on Sergey receiving an apology from Elon at, at a private event, like, it's hard to just make that up totally from whole cloth. That being said, the denials that have come out, or which I think have some wiggle room, I'll say, from Elon and from Nicole after the fact, 
you know, you got to think, speaking of the journal's caution and, and kind of the, the way that they would legally vet the story, you got to think if those denials came out, John, before the story published, which of course is not the journal's fault, you got to think that there would have been at least a little bit more back and forth. That's precisely my point, Teddy, that let's put it this way, good reporting should come with no surprises. And if they fully engaged the counsel of these people, they would have had ample reason to believe that this pushback was forthcoming. Uh, you know, no doubt about it. They, they would have been told time and time again, this is going to happen. We're going to, we're going to go, we're going to deny this. And in some cases, we're going to potentially demand a retraction or, or a massive correction. I'm content that there is some amount of this that, that is going to be unknowable just because of source protection. But we're no closer at the end of the story to believing there was an alleged affair than we were at the beginning. We're sort of told there is, but but I, I don't have any proof that makes me know that other than that I, I trust the Wall Street Journal. And I think that is surprising and uh, it's uncomfortable. And I also think that if this story ostensibly is about the fraying relationship between Sergey and Elon Musk, then it may just be that this alleged intimate relationship, the, the alleged affair, whatever they're calling it, that that's just unreportable, that you just don't know unless there's a sex tape, unless... unless one of the principals has confirmed this. And again, I don't know because we don't have a principal confirming this on the record. I'm just surprised that at some point in the process here, there wasn't an editor or a newsroom, newsroom leader who said, okay, we're going to do a story about this frayed relationship over time. And we're going to acknowledge that there were some like personal fallings out, but we're not going to talk about an affair because we can't go there. The only possibility that, that I think has been floated to Dylan and myself are like the detail of Elon apologizing to Sergey, like, what if someone overheard Elon admit it? But even so, even if that's the case, then all that person would could confirm is that Elon said something, and 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 it doesn't mean it's true. Elon Musk is saying a lot of things that are not true right now. Um, as any as any respectable uh, newsroom uh, executive would, would tell you. The other theory, I'm just you know really breaking the fourth wall here in terms of like just sure, yeah, this is how we talk, right? This is how we talk of, of how journalism is done. Like the other possibility is. Maybe there's something in the legal documents that the journal has that they can't reference, but they know where something is admitted. I don't know. I mean, a lot of this is under seal, but right. I mean, the, the challenge of the reporting on an affair is, you know, it's not Sergey believes an affair happened, right? It's an affair happened. An alleged an affair. That Again, it is it is the craziest thing. They're, they're not even stipulating that there was an affair. They're saying there's an alleged affair, but again, they are the ones alleging. I know I'm, we sound like we're kind of talking ourselves in circles here. There's a little red drum quality to this, but like that is, um, that is highly unusual. Right. But the last thing on this before we toss our break is just the, you made a good point about whether or not there is a strong enough business predicate for the story, like even even if it is true, and, and that was sort of the second question. That was why the, I thought a key detail of the piece was that Sergey had ordered his family office or his own personal investment advisors to divest from Elon's companies. I don't know how significant that is. Sergey is not like a five percent shareholder in Tesla. It's not reported on SEC docs. Like you could see a world, John, in which like let's say Sergey was on the board of Tesla, right? And he resigned from the board of Tesla over this. I think that'd be a much stronger story because then you'd have real, then it would be a business story. Like why did this board member of one of the company's, you know, biggest company, uh, one of the country's most valuable companies resign? The Ajla Affair is the explanation. Like then I think you're in much safer territory. But the journal basically said that Sergey ordered this. It wasn't clear how big a deal it was, but that would be a real sign of a rupture. And that would make it, I think, a much more, mainstream Wall Street Journal story. But obviously that's not true. And who knows? Maybe, maybe, I'm sure the journal is trying to get more details on that right now. Yeah, what you're, what you're getting at, Teddy, is that 
if, if this is true, it would normally be packaged as an incredibly revelatory detail in a much more substantial sort of Sunday pullout style thing that would make clear that there was substantial journalism being done around this in, in a much bigger way, right, with, with more significant predicates like you're talking about. As it's composed, though, the, the piece is a, it can seem like a contrived vessel for this one revelatory alleged detail. You can't just put something out there like this um, as an allegation. I, I really don't think you can. I think it's unfair. Uh, and I, th I think that it's going to impact how people, naturally, Nicole Shanahan will, will, will bear the the brunt of, of this. Um, Elon Musk is like sort of seemingly entering like the OJ level of like libel proof, you know, um, Sergey Brin, who, who knows, whatever. But but uh, it's always unfair. Women are always treated unfairly in these in these moments. And I just, um, I hope they put as much thought into it as they're going to have to uh, put thought into what comes next. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a sec with more. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back here with John Kelly. John, um, retreating to a much safer ground. Um, let's talk about uh, the NFL Plus deal that was announced this week. So it's very famous for, for, for football fans to be unable to want to watch the team that they want to watch. You know, you're very lucky if you live in San Francisco or uh, in New York and you are a Chiefs fan or a Packers fan or a Cowboys fan or like your team is con constantly and frequently on national TV. But the NFL is basically going through this transformation as kind of all of live sports are as, you know, they're trying to match up fans with markets uh, and fans with teams. And to some extent, technology and subscription can make that possible and maybe make it a little bit less of a shitty experience. So the NFL Plus service is premiering. They're offering out-of-market preseason games and in-season local games plus assorted bonus content. Mobile, five bucks a month. Premium, eight bucks a month. This is an attempt to kind of make it better. This is not like, you know, uh, a full freight streaming service that's, you know, going to be everything you want more, but it's at least going to make it a little bit easier to watch things, I guess, on your phone at least. How significant is this? It is the first step in a, in a massively significant, you know, tens and tens of billions of dollar transformation. Um, the NFL has an older ownership group than um other professional sports like certainly much older than than um, isn't it like all white too it's like it's like it's like you know it's all it's white the least diverse it's all white all, all sports leagues uh have tragic problems in this department but the nfl is old school and it has advertising and broadcast rights relationships with you know the biggest companies in the world when you think about it it's, it's broadcast business 
it is basically what remains of broadcast TV. You know, a, a majority of the 50 most watched shows per year are, you know, Sunday Night Football and, and, and other uh, national broadcasts. They have deals with CBS, deals with Fox, deals with NBC, ESPN. They're bidding off uh, Amazon and Apple right now for what used to be called Sunday Ticket, which is like all the, you know, this the out-of-market games that, that you were talking about. And they have their own network, NFL Network, that does, that does co-broadcast. So like 10 years ago, they began NFL Network as a sort of always-on opportunity to not threaten ESPN, but to really dip their toe in media. So they have all these relationships, but they also recognize that in doing so, they are they're making a gamble here. They're taking all this guaranteed recurring revenue, but they're losing a, a true view of their data. And they're probably losing some opportunities at, at, at global expansion too. That is one area where the NFL has lagged behind Major League Baseball and certainly of late the, the NBA. Football is an American game, but you know, they, they've tried before NFL Europe. There, there are plenty of examples. You know, they've tried games in London and, and it, it hasn't quite taken. But the NFL Plus is an opportunity to really begin the direct-to-consumer journey. And I'm not entirely sure that this group of owners that don't have you know a lot of media experiences. It's not like the NBA where you have like a Mark Cuban who, who's you know very sophisticated about this sort of stuff. They have deals that that stretch out years and years and years down the road with their broadcast partners. But this gives them a foot on the ground to learn and to figure out if they want to eventually go it alone. Because you could imagine if they wanted to launch a you know basically a, an NFL Netflix where they control the content, they streamed live games, and they had enough sort of snackable, I hate that word, but snackable content in between the combine and and the draft and and the preseason, which they could do. And, and certainly with with gambling, um, they could use this potentially as a, as a, a ticket taker in, in that world. Then boy, you could see how that scales pretty quickly and pr- pretty enormously. And they don't need to cut in anyone else to do it. Um, I think that this is a decade long, decade plus process but they're in the game now. And what's also interesting to me is I was surprised by this announcement. I, I had I was aware that they, there was some DTC curiosity there, but they got this to market. NFL Plus, you know, beat CNN Plus to market. That tells you something about how serious they are about this. You're, you're a Jets fan, I assume, John? I was going to make a joke before about how um, out-of-market games aren't really a problem. I, I live like seven miles from... Um, MetLife Stadium, and there isn't any amount of money you could pay me to to go there to watch the Jets or the Giants. I would be thrilled to watch Mahomes play Russell Wilson uh, all season long. I'm just hopeful for some sports to come back. This is like the worst part of the year. I'm not I'm not a huge baseball fan, and uh, it's dog is the summer before anything really happens. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Teddy. If you were if you were a Yankee fan, you you would be in the middle of one of the most exciting Augusts ever. But but fear not, my friend. You're you are like basically two weeks away from the first hard knocks and uh um, yes oh thank god who's the se- who's on hard knocks this season the lions oh that'd be fun and- i know that sounds terrible maybe we'll use this platform of media monday i think that there should be there's a lot of talk right now about disgrace that commander's owner dan snyder is is reaping on the league for various investigations but i actually think that the it is the Ford family that should be defrocked from ownership of the lions when you look at the the lack of success that the Lions owned by the Ford family have had for the last 50 years. I think only Jim Caldwell in, in the last few decades uh, left a head coaching job there with, with a winning record, you know, even Wayne Fonts in a winning record, that they should find some other Bell Mead or whatever, Bloom Hills uh, 
billionaire to, to buy that team. There'll be plenty of them. Anyway, th- th- those are my uh, unsolicited thoughts on the topic. John, uh, have a good week and uh, we'll see you back next Monday. Talk to you soon, Teddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.